Welcome to the Policy at McCombs podcast, a data-driven conversation on the economic issues of today. In this series, we invite guests into our studio to provide a highlight of their work presented during a visit to the University of Texas at Austin. Policy at McCombs is produced by the Center for Enterprise and Policy Analytics at the McCombs School of Business. I am your co-host, Carlos Carvalho, with my colleague, Mario Villarreal. Our guest today is Professor Lawrence Ball, Chair of the Economics Department at Johns Hopkins University. Larry is part of the National Bureau of Economic Research and a consultant for the International Monetary Fund. His research focuses on unemployment, inflation, and monetary policy. And Larry joined us today to talk about his recent book, The Fed and Lehman Brothers, setting the record straight on a financial disaster. Larry, welcome to Policy at McCombs. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Give us a sense of what motivated you to write this book and tell us a bit about the journey to get you here. It was a pretty natural process. I'm a macroeconomist, so like a lot of people, I wondered why was there this big recession 10 years ago? And at some level, the answer is because we had a big financial crisis. Okay, why did we have a big financial crisis? Uh, well, the Lehman Brothers' failure was the pivotal event. So why did Lehman fail? And then when you start looking into it, what's striking is that uh, nobody else failed. Everybody else was rescued by the Federal Reserve or the Treasury. So pretty quickly, the whole question becomes, why wasn't Lehman rescued? When I started looking into that, I quickly discovered that there's a lot of information available on that from uh from investigations by the bankruptcy examiner and a congressional commission. So if one's willing to spend four years uh, going through the details, and I'm kind of an obsessive-compulsive, detailed-oriented person, um, there's, you could actually learn a lot. So, and, and, and I reached some firm conclusions about the topic. Well, glad, glad you did it, because the book is a great read, and we recommend this book to all of our audience uh, listen to it today. So give us a summary of, of the main argument in the book. The main question is, why did the Fed allow Lehman to fail? The main answer, in a sense, is a negative one, that the reason the Fed allowed Lehman to fail is not the reason that Federal Reserve officials, uh, Ben Bernanke on down, have said over and over again. Their explanation is that um, they did not have the legal authority to rescue Lehman because under the law, Lehman did not have enough collateral for the loan it needed. And the central point of the book is that if you look carefully at the evidence, it's beyond question, I think, that Lehman did have enough collateral for the loan it needed. So a Fed rescue would have been legal. For that matter, it would not have been very risky for the Fed or taxpayers. Um, now, if the legal authority explanation is not right, that leads to the question of, what was the real reason? And, and there, my basic answer is not terribly original. It's uh, primarily that it was a political decision um, driven primarily by Treasury Secretary Paulson, who didn't want to be known as Mr. Bailout. Um, and, and again, that's not original. Many people have said, oh, obviously, it was all political. But I think the value added of my book is really establishing that the alternative history that Fed officials have tried to build uh, just doesn't fit reality at all. And that's, of course, very important for us to understand how to think about these problems going forward, right? Understanding how um, the policies of the Fed have to be set in place in order for whenever an event like that happen again, we're better prepared. Yes. Uh, so the, the point being that the Fed perhaps should have, have provided liquidity to Lehman. So let, let us speculate a little bit and, and get your thoughts on what do you think would have happened 
and and how the financial crisis would have unfolded potentially differently had the Fed provided the, li the liquidity limit needed in that weekend of September 12, 13, and, and 15 of, of 2008? That's a great question and inherently a little hard to answer. I think I'm pretty clear on what did happen, given there's a lot of evidence. Reasonable people can disagree on how much difference it would have made. Having said that, I'm on the side that really the Lehman failure was the critical event, which caused strains in financial markets and the risk of a mild recession to turn into a complete disaster and uh, the Great Recession. And that if Lehman had been rescued, um, there would not have been anywhere near the panic in financial markets. Uh, the whole financial crisis would have been less severe, quite possibly uh, other Fed rescues and government assistance would not have been as necessary. Um, and the whole Great Recession, I think, would have been less severe. And if you want to carry it further, the whole last decade would have been a happier period for the economy. Who knows how politics would have evolved, but it would have been a very different world, I think. For the benefit of our general audience, uh, it seems that there are bankruptcies in many industries around the world. But not all of them lead to the catastrophic results that Lehman Brothers and the whole financial crisis had. What is peculiar about the financial industry that in, in facing these events leads to catastrophic results? So that's a great question, um, which I, I think I can answer at a couple levels. Um, finance is one industry, it's a not that big a share of GDP, but it's something which is used by all other industries. Every kind of business uh, has cash flowing through it and needs to use credit and needs to extend credit. Uh, so if finance breaks down, that affects the ability to operate of every firm in, in the economy. Um, Larry Summers once, I'm borrowing this from him, used an analogy to electricity, uh, that if you imagine what happened if the electricity went off in the country for three months, you might say, well, electricity is not that big a percentage of GDP, and if we lose three months, that's not that much of a loss. But of course, uh, everybody, everything depends on electricity, and there would be disproportionate disruptions. The other thing I'll add a little bit more technically um, Bankruptcy law, Chapter 11 bankruptcy, uh, is set up very badly for financial institutions. Because the, the whole idea of, of Chapter 11 bankruptcy is if a firm's in financial distress, you freeze its finances or put that under court supervision, the, the, the borrowing and lending and flows of money. And then if you're a car company, you, you keep on producing cars while people work out the financial problems. Um, but there, there's nothing analysis to continuing business as usual because for an investment bank, borrowing and lending money and flows of cash, that's all there is. That's the whole business. So if you, if you freeze that, you're, you're, you're shutting down the business. So th there's a, um, a general misunderstanding also of the role that the Fed has as a lender of last resort in the, in the financial system. Uh, can you speak a little bit about that and also try to um, give a sense of this notion that the loan that perhaps would have been needed or it's done oftentimes by the lender of last resort um, cannot necessarily be characterized as a bailout. It's not a gift. It's a loan that happens that tends to be repaid to the taxpayer and and... And in that same line of questioning, um, what, given what we saw after the fact, uh, what would, would you think would be the potential losses that taxpayers would have been facing, would have faced if the, 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 
Fed had decided to provide liquidity to Lehman. That, that's an extremely important question going forward. And I think there is a tremendous amount of unfortunate misunderstanding by the public and by uh, elected officials. Um, if I were running the world, I would banish the term bailout uh, because it's pejorative. Uh, uh, it doesn't sound like something good. Um, uh, I would use the term uh, emergency loan or maybe emergency liquidity assistance or something <laughs> innocuous or technical sounding like that. But substantively, the, the, the point is, as, as you suggested, what Lehman Brothers needed in particular was a short-term loan against good collateral. Um, that was a loan which was very likely to be paid back, even if somehow, bizarrely, it had not been paid back. Again, there was good collateral that the Fed could have held on to. So really, there was no risk to the taxpayer. I mean, it's really a very sad irony that uh, people say, well, it's good that the Fed stuck up for the taxpayer by not bailing out Lehman. Um, there, there was no benefit to the taxpayer. The, the implication for the taxpayer is that we had the collapse of Lehman and the financial crisis and the, the recession, and a lot of taxpayers lost their jobs really unnecessarily as a result of the financial crisis. So I wish I, the one thing I'll add there. Um, it, uh, in, uh, recently, um, the officials at the time, Ben Bernanke and Tim Geithner and Henry Paulson, the, who were the top officials at the making policy, they have talked about the fact that the Dodd-Frank Act, the financial reform in 2010, has limited the Fed's uh, ability to make emergency loans. And they've pointed out that that's uh, dangerous and because we may need the Fed's emergency lending in the future. And I agree 100% with Bernanke and Geithner and Paulson that it's dangerous that Congress has limited uh, the ability of the Fed to lend. I personally find it a little bit ironic that they stress that, given that when there was greater authority um, to for the Fed to lend, they, they didn't use the authority uh, when it was really needed. And just to, to piggyback on that, um, the, my understanding of the modification on Dodd-Frank associated with that restriction is the fact that now... Treasury has to approve any decisions of liquidity provision made by the Fed on an event of a, of a crisis like that. Is that correct? Yes, there are several restrictions. There are restrictions about what types of loans and what types of circumstances, which arguably uh, could make something like the AIG loan or the Bear Stearns rescue illegal. There's also, though, you're right, the requirement that the Treasury Secretary um, approve anything. I think my reading of the crisis is that de facto, um, the Fed gave Secretary Paulson veto power over their actions, but they didn't have to do that. A, a more independent-minded Fed could have said, uh, we, we don't care what the Treasury Department uh, says, it's none of their business. Uh, but, but now, uh, in the future, no matter how independent-minded the Fed is, if the Treasury Secretary doesn't want a quote-unquote bailout, um, uh, he, can, he can now veto it. And it does surprise me, given the the, the, the actors involved here, because it, it's not like they were not involved after the fact and participated in the discussions with Dodd-Frank. Both uh, Bernanke continued to be the Fed chairman, and Geithner became the, the, the Treasury Secretary, and uh, and still that authority, um, the, the modification was still made. This may be a natural follow-up of, of this narrative, and, and uh, perhaps rightly so, one of the reactions after the crisis was to demand an intervention designed to prevent this from happening again. And uh, the political, economic, public policy response to this was to enact more regulation. You are critical 
about that in your book. Is your criticism about the specific form that that regulation took, uh, meaning Dodd-Frank's, or is a more uh, general critique about the prospects of any regulation of being effective in taming these forces? I mean, my criticism and the things I feel strongly about are pretty specific about the Fed should have a very flexible ability to be a lender of last resort. The Dodd-Frank Act, of course, covers lots of other things, lots of other regulations, and the details, are, of course, are mind-bogglingly complex. I, For what it's worth, I tend to be more on the side of, of we should have pretty extensive regulation. We should have robust capital requirements, a restrict kind of risk-risking activities, recognizing that that will never be perfect. I mean, I think, again, this is an analogy other people have used. Actually, Ben Bernanke once used an analogy to the problem that burning that buildings catch on fire and burn down. Um, what do we do about that? I mean, we, we have to attack it in two ways. I mean, uh, first of all, you know, we need to have the best possible building codes, try to make sure people's electrical wiring is sound and, and so on, to try to minimize the risk of fire. Having said that, it's never going to be perfect. There are going to be fires sometimes. So we also need uh, a fire department that's going to come uh, quickly uh, to the rescue. And um, the problem with the Dodd-Frank Act, I think, is that they put barriers uh, in front of the fire trucks. And um, given that inevitably there will be another crisis, it's going to be harder to respond. Is there a way to balance uh, political incentives with the pursuit of sound financial economic policy? If I might borrow from that analogy, what if uh, the house owner or the uh, landlord or the whoever is running that like, decides to plug plenty of things because we're having a huge party and overcharge electrical wires and electrical system for his or her own benefit. Is there a way to balance uh, those two things? So, so that's a that, that it is a good analogy, uh, I think, um, because when people people talk about moral hazard is the jargon that if you rescue financial firms, they'll they'll be sloppy or reckless in the future. But I think actually. My attitude is similar. You, I mean, you could imagine right now that a fire breaks out in Austin, Texas, and the fire trucks are going there, and and citizens rush into the street and say, "Tell the fire trucks to stop," and say, "Don't you know you're encouraging people to be, you know, to be reckless with their electrical wiring?" I think most people would say, you know, the costs are, you know, the costs are just too great of letting the house burn down. Let's save the house, and let's do the best we can in the future uh, to have better regulation. And I, I think that's probably the right, uh, the right, you know, we, we don't want the house to burn down or in the case here, we don't want the whole world economy to burn down uh, just to make a, a point about moral hazard. You brought up a point of, of uh, capital requirements associated with um, banks in general in the financial system. Um, in your opinion, and after you did a very careful analysis of Lehman's balance sheet to understand its solvency uh, at, the, at the crisis time, um, do you think we are at a at a good place in terms of our current capital requirements, the amount of leverage banks can, can take. And because obviously with le less leverage, the magnitudes of a potential run on a financial institution, the fire essentially in this analogy, it's a smaller fire mm -hmm. right? if, if, if leverage is, is, is at lower levels. Where were we and where are we now relatively? And do you think from, from your analysis that, that are we in a good place or a bad place? That is a good question, very controversial. I honestly don't know the answer for sure. I think we're, we're in a better place. Of course, with hindsight, like, like a lot of disasters, it's in some ways easy 
to look back and say, what were people thinking with uh, investment banks doing these very risky things and having asset to equity ratios of 40 or 50, um, you know, being so that, so that just a really small loss would be enough to push them into insolvency. I think the situation is better now. Um, how much better it is, it's difficult to measure. It's hard to know what's coming in the future. I would probably err on the side of better safe than sorry. You know, there, there may be some inefficiencies or costs of higher capital, um, but the, the, the costs of not having enough capital are, are, we've seen again and again in history are so disastrous, I'd probably err on the side of being pretty cautious. During his live presentation, I asked Larry about the institutional backdrop surrounding the decision to let Lehman go. It is safe to say that Treasury Secretary Henry Paulson made the final call, and by law, he had no authority to hear. Ten years have passed, and we have books and documentaries celebrating the people trying to save us from a financial disaster. But most people fail to appreciate that we saw an institutional breakdown. What should have been a technical decision addressed independently by the Federal Reserve ended up being co-opted by the political process. Yeah, so that's a fascinating part of the story, right? So the classic theory of the lender of last resort says the central bank should be the lender of last resort, not the government. And the Federal Reserve Act says the Federal Reserve can decide whether the Federal Reserve lends. I mean, there's a procedure in which uh, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York can ask the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve in Washington to approve a loan, and the Board of Governors votes on it. The role of the Treasury Secretary in that process is exactly the same as the role of the Secretary of Agriculture. Um, it's exactly the same as the role of the mayor of Austin, Texas. Uh, um, uh, it, it's, it's not supposed to be any of his uh, business. Um, now, what, what happened in this episode was, I mean, the, the basic facts are Henry Paulson got on an airplane and went to New York and went to the New York Fed and starting started telling Tim Geithner, the president of the New York Fed, what to do, and Tim Geithner did what Henry Paulson said. Um, and Henry Paulson made the decision. At some point, Henry Paulson said words, you know, you know, very closely approximated by Lehman has to declare bankruptcy. Um, and uh, so then there's a question of why, you know, why did they defer to Henry Paulson? Um, and maybe I won't even say anything about that right now. Unless, <laughs> I, 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 the, the best it's in I, the book. The, the, it's in the, yeah, right, right, you got it. Uh, I mean, the, the best I can do is just sort of force of personalities that Hen Henry Paulson was the kind of person who over his career was used to going into rooms and telling people what to do. And if they didn't do it the first time, he said it louder and with, uh, actually, if you read Andrew Ross Sorkin's book, um, uh, these guys really used, you know, you know, inappropriate for the office language and talking about these things. Um, and uh, Geithner and Bernanke just, for whatever reason, um, uh, didn't, didn't resist that. Um, I, I mean, like Geithner could have, you know, told Paulson, you know, we're going to have the security guards of the New York Fed escort you out of the building. Uh, but, but he didn't do that for whatever reason. Mario, after the great discussion with Larry, what are some of your highlights? Well, Larry provides a very lively account of the meetings and discussions that happened in the initial days of the 2008 financial crisis. His narrative includes conversations and statements from important figures, including those that later would play a crucial role in the post-crisis discussions. One of these figures is Barney Frank, the Frank in the 2010 Dodd-Frank Act. He has an interesting sense of humor and offers a colorful description of the mid-September 2008 events. I, three things could have happened. One is they could have eventually gotten the Barclays deal through. 
Uh, the second is that that didn't work, and um, but Lehman was able, like AIG, like lots of firms, to do some restructuring, to maybe raise some capital to survive. The third is that that didn't work, and Lehman ultimately, like, say, long-term capital management, had to be wound down. Uh, but as I discussed in the book, e e even in that case, um, having a wind down over a period of months where they can sell assets um, uh, close out contracts would have been much less disruptive. Um, I think there were a couple of law professors this morning who backed me up on this, that uh, the, the idea of telling uh, a corporation you have to file the biggest bankruptcy petition in, in U.S. history uh, by a large margin and you have six hours to do the bankruptcy petition is, is, is just like science fiction. So it, it, it accounts for how disorder, so buying time would have made a, would have made a big difference. Actually, uh, ben Bernanke, in his memoir, has like, an interesting passage in which he talks about one of Lehman's strategic plans, which was, you hear the jargon about a good bank and a bad bank. It was gonna, Lehman was going to spin off its bad assets, get different investors. And Bernanke actually says, you know, that kind of scheme uh, works sometimes. That wasn't a crazy idea. But then he dismisses it. He says, well, obviously, they didn't have time to implement that. They were about to go bankrupt the next day. But the reason they didn't have time to implement it was that the Fed wouldn't uh, provide the loan. One key lesson here is that in some cases, thinking about regulation as an effective instrument in preventing bad things from happening, in this instance, another financial disaster, may mislead the way regulation is crafted and enacted. According to Larry's analysis, that is what happened with the 2010 Dodd-Frank banking law. Perhaps overreacting to the dramatic consequences of the crisis and with the hopes of preventing future instances of costly financial turmoil, the Dodd-Frank Act limited Fed's abilities to lend money, thus making future financial crises more difficult to manage. That's a great point, Mario. Before we wrap up, you can get more information and watch Larry's full presentation in our Medium page. Thanks for listening to Policy at McCombs. See you next time. <laughs>